Welcome to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check and hosted by senior legal analysts Jessica Mason Piclo and Imani Gandhi. This episode, we talk about Ferguson, Missouri, and how we might be able to find some justice for Michael Brown, his family, and the community. Importantly, also, what justice in this case looks like, which, in my opinion, Imani, is one of the most difficult questions we have to answer. What justice would look like involves sort of dismantling white supremacy and structural racism. I don't really see that happening anytime soon, especially given the events in Ferguson. It seems to me that white supremacy is just a thing in this country and that there are white people, like people who are tasked with protecting and serving citizens of this country who are invested in maintaining white supremacy, maintaining that power. So I don't know how we go about doing that. But in the meantime, it certainly would be nice to get some more regulations on the ways in which police departments interact with the citizens that they're supposed to be protecting. You know, right as the um, initial details of the Michael Brown shooting emerged, you were rightly one of the first to say, hey, folks, this is a reproductive justice issue, that police violence in our communities is absolutely something that ties into the ability to parent and and parent how and where a person chooses. And I think that this is a conversation that as the press has pulled out of, of Ferguson a little bit and as we move from sustaining the immediate protest to the police action to a longer move these kinds of, of policies are going to be really important, particularly if we're going to have the ability to have any faith in a legal injustice system in this country. Yes. I mean, it's it's really disheartening to see black women, women of color on Twitter saying things like, I don't have children now and I don't know if I want to raise children in this country. And so, you know, you, we, we talk a lot about, you know, abortion rights and and anti-choicers and their, their sort of campaign to force everyone to to uphold life above everything else. But then we don't see those people crying out when black women's children are being gunned down in the street. And so there's a real disconnect there when we want to talk about pro-life and when we want to talk about what it is that feminist organizations and mainstream reproductive rights organizations are doing to help communities of color combat this huge problem. And that is police brutality and the ways in which authority figures, police don't view black bodies as human and view them as something other than normal. So you get the, you get comments like, well, Mike Brown, you know, his big scary self was a weapon. So we can't call him an unarmed teenager because he was six, four and he was black. I mean, that's just, that's unacceptable thinking. And we need to do more about combating that thinking. I personally need white people to do more about talking to other white people about racism and about fear of the black body, because the only way we're going to get past this is sort of as a community. And that requires more than white folks saying, wow, thou, wow, that's a real damn shame. But it actually requires action and talking to one another, talking to people in your church, talking to your family members about what it means when you see a black person and why it is all of a sudden you feel anxious or scared and what what that stems from and how that stems from racism and how it's not a bad thing to talk about. It is critically important for white people to talk about this with other white people because, frankly, they're the ones who need to change. And I think one of the points that can get lost in this is the way to which the law takes those biases and takes those defaults, that idea that Mike Brown what couldn't possibly be an unarmed victim because in our minds, a big black 
teenager is automatically a threat, that the way that that gets ingrained in our law and in particular in this case in our policing so that there is an actual real result that is tied to it, even if white folks don't think there is. It manifests in very strange ways. So, you know, you have two weeks of protests, two weeks of protests that were started by the police. I mean, I hate to sound like a kindergartner here, but really they started it. You know, they started it by shooting him, you know, like an animal in the street. They started it by sweeping the name of the officer who was involved in the shooting under the rug, letting him escape town, scrub his social media presence. So we don't know whether or not he had any biases that maybe he expressed on Facebook or on Twitter. And then it it, it manifested itself when after two weeks of, of police engaging citizens as if they were military, as if they were war combatants in some sort of war zone with dogs, riot dogs and riot gear and tanks and rubber bullets and tear gas, then to all of a sudden have a national response where the governor calls in the National Guard not to protect the community, but to protect the cops. And I think particularly for the reproductive rights community, um, it's important for us to call Governor Jay Nixon out on this. I mean, he has been an ally in the sense that he has vetoed some really ridiculous anti-choice legislation passed in the state. But we have a Democratic governor here calling out the National Guard in the state of Missouri to protect law enforcement that is positively tone deaf if you have even the most rudimentary understanding of civil rights history in this country. And to do so, in such a way and then still dodge questions about um, law enforcement and executive accountability in terms of any uh, investigation, any potential indictment. I mean, there's a lot of open questions about how allies in this situation are acting. And I think it's really important, and I'm urging all of my people in the community to do this, to pressure him to say, our community is better than this, Governor Nixon. I I absolutely agree. And I think that um, it's, I think it's incumbent upon us to pressure one another. I mean, for example, you know, about a week after the event started to unfold, I checked Planned Parenthood's and NARAL's Twitter feeds and saw that they hadn't said a word about it. So I started raising hell, you know, like, where are you guys? Like, how is it possible that this is happening and you guys are still talking about Hobby Lobby? On your Twitter feeds. And hopefully this is the wake-up call um, for sustained action as opposed to just reaction within the community. I would love to see the reproductive rights organizations as co-sponsors of legislation to improve policing tactics in the community to really call out the racial profiling that is going on in these instances and the disproportionate impact of um, policing generally on, on the black community. I mean, we should be leading on these issues. We really should. And I would encourage anyone listening listening to um, to check out a petition that Sean King has developed. If you just Google Sean King, S-H-A-U-N King, and if you just Google Sean King petition Ferguson, it will pop up. And I just want to read off the, the policy solutions that he is putting forth. The first is the avoidable shooting and killing or otherwise murdering of an unarmed citizen who does not have an outstanding warrant for a violent crime should be a federal offense. Number two, chokeholds and chest compressions by police, which is what the coroner lists as the official cause of death for Eric Garner in New York, should be federally banned. Number three, all police officers must wear forward-facing body cameras while on duty. Number four, a trusted third-party business should monitor and store all videos from forward-facing cameras. Number five, suspensions for violation of any of the above offenses should be unpaid. 
Number six, all murders by police must be investigated immediately so by a trusted and unbiased third party. And number seven, convictions for the above offenses should have their own set of mandatory minimum penalties. So I really, really like the fact that this, this man sat down and just tried to come up with policy solutions, legislative solutions. And so far, the petition has almost a quarter million signatures. And it's something that I think that we can agitate for because regulating the police and and demilitarizing the police doesn't just benefit people of color. It benefits all people. I mean, there are poor, poor white communities that suffer from the same sort of over-policing. So I think that it's time for us to, as you say, engage in sustained action and not just let this be another flash in the pan. And then, you know, in two weeks, some other black man is going to get slain and we're going to do this all over again. I really hope this is a flashpoint for, for action that will result in something positive. We are joined with Pam Merritt, Communications Director at Progress Missouri and blogger at angryblackbitch.com and a Guardian contributor. Pam is a longtime progressive activist in the state of Missouri who is here to talk with us about the shooting death of Mike Brown, the Ferguson protests, and police violence as a reproductive justice issue. Pam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. As a progressive organizer in the state, I'm hoping you can help put some context on the events in Ferguson for us. Um, Give us an explanation of some of the political dynamics there and um, basically how we got to the point where um, we had the police response that we did and the community pushback. Wow. (laughs) It's a big question. I know. (laughs) So um, just some history uh, that, you know, Historically, black neighborhoods have been moved around in St. Louis, um, in St. Louis County, for quite some time. Um, we had, as most cities in America did, had redlining, and we also had some really clever codes that um, made it very hard for people of color to um, live in certain areas. Um, it, you know, my family moved to St. Louis County in 1976, I think, 77. And my mother had to threaten to sue to be shown a house in the neighborhood we ultimately um, ended up moving into because it was uh, predominantly white. So this is a, a longstanding issue of moving certain populations um, and uh, and basically restricting ease of movement. And married with that is the uh, the other longstanding problem, which is uh, a completely disproportionate um, representation in government based upon the population um, that is living in these in these areas. Um, so there's a lot that goes into that, um, but that's basically the platform. And then the, the overarching issue of Missouri is that, you know, Missouri might be in the middle of the country, but this state had some of the most uh, violent and horrific moments of the Civil War take place within our borders. The Kansas-Missouri border war was a precursor to the Civil War, and we have been fighting it ever since. So when folks think about um, think about racism and think about um, how that impacts communities, they often think of iconic Civil rights pictures from Birmingham or from Jackson, Mississippi, but, you know, 
right here in St. Louis, we, we've had a series, I mean, not recently, but one of the worst race riots in American history took place in East St. Louis. Um, and a lot of the reason why we haven't had like those sixties riots is because white flight had already happened to St. Louis by the time a lot of the unrest of the sixties kicked into gear. Um, that's a very long winded way for me to say that this has been, this is a long time coming and we have had profiling of, uh, people of color be an issue that a lot of people like to collect data on. A lot of people like to talk about, but not a lot of people want to do a damn thing about. So in under the Missouri state legislature, it legally has to collect data for racial profiling uh, when it comes to law enforcement pulling people over. I, I've seen the attorney general, you know, release that data year after year, and it shows that people are getting profiled, and then it sits there and collects dust. So this is really a watershed moment for my community and for the greater St. Louis community just because this is this is kind of where folks drew a line and took a stand and said that you know enough is enough and and we're going to we're going to speak up and then it, you know at the moment in which people realized that this young man um was unarmed and we started to hear stories about you know he was just walking down the street I, I think immediately as a as a person of color, I was like, Oh, I know I know what happened. And of course, we don't have all of the details. Um, but what we do have is this remembered almost genetic memory of what it's like to be pulled over and singled out just because you're black. Of that incredible feeling of 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 distrust and panic, um, that that hits you and it's happened to me. I mean, I've been pulled over driving while black in St. Louis County and I'm like a short round black woman with an Afro, but I never get a ticket. I just get pulled over, which is a very telling thing. Um, so, so I think for, for those of us who've experienced this and, and particularly for those of us who have watched the hyper targeting of black young black men, we immediately, had a notion of what was going down. The response of the community in St. Louis, and I can only speak for St. Louis because I've experienced it a lot here, is that whenever there is a young person or a loss of life, the community gathers around. And so um, I I drive down St. Louis streets and see um, teddy bear memorials for children who have been struck by a car or who passed away from SIDS or something like that. And so I think it was natural and completely understandable for the community in Ferguson to gather at the site in which Michael Brown was shot and, um, and do what is, is natural, which is to culturally try to prop up this family. His mother was on the scene. His stepfather was on the scene. His friends and his other family, I think, were also there. And, you know, we're talking about a scene that um, that stretched on and on. It was four hours before uh, Michael Brown's body was removed um, and given the dignity of being, you know, taken off the scene. So what, what developed in response to that was absolutely ridiculous, which is that it's almost as if they, at, at, at a certain point, 
the for Ferguson police officers, we uh, had reached like the count. Maybe it was like a, a minimum number of 20 black people that they could allow on the street at one time. When that 21st person showed up, all of a sudden it was like watching a revival of Birmingham. It basically to see people respond to understandable community grief with the kind of overwhelming police force that showed up that very first day. And I think that that gets lost in a lot of the coverage. But they, you know, his body had just been moved away. These these people were, you know, driving over the flowers. I saw reports that they allowed a dog to urinate on the memorial. That's the, that's the day he died. And, um, and even at that point, you know, the community was just voicing its agony. And, and for me, watching the response, I was like, we're not even entitled to be in agony about this. One of the things that you brought up that I think is really important is just how complicated it is going to be to try and find some justice for Mike Brown and his family. I know as the protests were happening and the police response was escalating, there were a lot of calls and at times myself included for Governor Nixon to bring in the National Guard, which he ultimately did. But even that as a response is problematic for Missouri. And I was wondering if you could put some context on that because I think that gets to the larger point that I want to talk about, which is, you know, there have been there have been and rightly so cries for justice here. But (laughs) what what does that look like when the system has failed out of the gate? I've been giving this a lot of thought um, and and I haven't quite got all the answers um, or even close. But one of the things that I keep circling back to is that for this community, um, we're going to have to walk together as people of color and the broader community too, um, and, and resist at every step of the way, the school of tolerance, um, which is what it's, it's not just Midwestern. It's, it's also Southern and, and I'm sure other communities have it too, but we have a tendency to want to look good and to want to frame our region and our city really well and to, um, not want to have difficult conversations. And so the first quest for justice is to have the right to be human and to have emotion about this whole thing, um, which has been denied the people of Ferguson for two weeks. The second quest for justice is that there is obviously a legal path that um, I I will be quite honest, I don't have really high hopes right now for um, you know, it's a challenging uh, path to begin with. And then the same kind of systemic issues that brought about the response that we saw and even brought about, um, in, in based upon my interpretation of what happened, could have brought about the shooting of Michael Brown, are the same systemic problems that we'll, we will face as we try to navigate the legal system um, to bring justice uh for for the killing of Michael Brown. Um, so I, I think the community needs to be walked um, and, and, and held close just because there is that pain. So one of the things I think people need to start, start focusing on is that life is precious and, and it will never be the same for, for, for that family. This young man is gone. 
and the reason we need to, to work really hard um, and stay the course is to, is to prevent this kind of um, loss of life is because justice is, is an empty, empty box when you've lost a loved one. Um, and then as a reproductive justice activist, I, I of course think, well, there, there, if anything good can come of this, um, it could be that we start or we start organizing and working to right these wrongs and cure these ills and prevent this from, from happening to another family. Um, you know, prevent another mother from being denied her right to parent her child in the neighborhood that is, is that is safe and free of violence um, and prevent, you know, this kind of response. To what extent do you think that the, that the, um, the uprising in Ferguson has spawned a new generation of young sort of revolutionaries, people who may have mm-hmm. otherwise not been particularly engaged in the political process, but having, um, you know, undergone what the sort of police brutality that was that was lobbed at them. How, how mm-hmm. much do you think that that's affected young people? And do you think that that's something that young people are going to going to carry on with them for the rest of their lives and is going to cause them to get more engaged in their community, more engaged in activism? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I think I have seen young people emerge as leaders in a way that I had not seen it before. And I say that very deliberately just because, you know, my Gen X self might not have seen it just because I am not a young person anymore. I'm, I'm coming to grips with that. But, um, but I think that there's been activism, there's been discussions, there's been um, pockets that haven't necessarily um, moved and formed into one larger group for for a, for a while now, I, and I think what what is particularly inspiring to me is that um, they're using the tools of their generation to uh, to do the same kind of work that we saw civil rights activists do in previous generations. And so it's not different uh, to to be posting to a blog or to be. Um, having your own web channel and to be using Twitter, it, it reminds me of watching Eyes on the Prize and seeing people, you know, making sure that those pictures got out and making sure that pictures of Emmett Till got out and making sure that the, um, that there were cameras on the ground documenting what was happening in Birmingham or Selma. So this to me, but it also reminds me of that kind of generational divide that took place during the civil rights movement when you had um, young activists like SNCC who were were taking one path and then you had more caution um, in a different course, in a, I think a different level of comfort from folks who were in an older generation. So somebody who is, you know, 41 and is approaching this from, uh, from, from my comfort zone and my space and my area of expertise, um, I, am, I am disgustingly thrilled to see young people who are be, who are the target of this kind of um, oppression organizing and raising themselves up and, and the best part is demanding that they have a seat at that table. And um, and and I also see, you know, older activists and some of our elders 
doing, you know, working within their place of comfort and organizing in a way that they are familiar with. And I don't see those as two bad things happening at the same time. Um, you know, the, it's okay to have a church service and to, um, and to, and to loop in and organize people who are comfortable there. It is also important to acknowledge that everybody doesn't go to church anymore. Um, everybody didn't go to church back then. So, uh, so that, that area of organizing, um, and, and focusing is, is not the same. You know, the black community is, is very broken up, um, along some socioeconomic lines. So, um, so, so it's going to look different and, you know, looking at what young college students are doing is very different than what I'm seeing from folks who are, you know, from workers on the street, but it's, um, but it's of the same and, and it all needs to happen and be supported and, and one is not better than the other. So when I think about some of the most amazing images and moments and testimony and movement work that I saw happening, I, I saw it happening with young people. I saw it happening um, online and offline. It, I saw offline work going online and um, and I really I I I simply can't get past the fact that I don't think we'd be here with the eyes of the world watching and uh, us in this national discussion, in this local discussion happening, if it weren't for the work that the young activists did on the ground. Pam, you have been absolutely amazing to talk yeah, to about awesome. all of this. <laughs> Thanks so much for the coverage. And um, for all of, you know, shining a spotlight on the issue. Thank you for listening to RJ Court Watch, a legal podcast produced by RH Reality Check. For more coverage of Ferguson and related issues, please visit us at www.rhrealitycheck.org.